Well, Heavenly Father, we gather this morning to give you glory, to worship and praise your holy name, to realign our lives with you. Father, you know at this time of year especially, we feel this ongoing tension between the joy of celebration, of celebrating the first advent of our Savior's birth with the fun and the beauty and the gladness of this holiday season. But against that, the ongoing struggles of living in this trouble-ridden world. We long for Christ to come again and put things fully right here. We are deeply saddened by the news of yesterday's tornadoes, and we pray that you would bring comfort to those who have lost someone and those still wondering and waiting if their loved ones have survived. We call upon your name. Please help and sustain the first responders and the volunteers still searching. You are mighty to save. Please, God, intervene. Closer to home, we pray for our PBC students who may have a trying week ahead with exams and other stresses, so we pray that you would give them focus and concentration and discipline, all that they need to finish strong and finish well. We ask you to comfort those among us who are fighting illness or who are mourning during the Christmas season. May your very presence with us and your grace be sufficient again and again. It is our desire that our faith and hope to be in you alone, no matter what outer storms come our way. You are the one on the throne who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and the sea and that all that is in them. We cry out to you who knows and sees and hears and in whom we trust. We cannot bear these burdens. We are not you, God. So we release to you the things over which we have no control, reminding ourselves this too is in your hands. We entrust our burdens into your hands. Thank you for being with us this morning, right here among us. Bless Brian and each one of the teachers who will be working with our children and youth this morning. Give each and every one of us ears to hear the Spirit's words to us. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome. If you are new today, we would love to have a chance to connect with you and welcome you. So if you notice there is a connections card in the pew rack in front of you and we would love for you to fill that out and after the service, you can drop it in the box or go see the folks at our welcome table because we have a goodie bag for you if you are new or visiting this morning. And that connections card will help us connect with you and we can get better acquainted. Well, tis the season for Christmas announcements, and our first one is today, so I hope that you remembered your Christmas 
unwrapped toy or your coats for city team or for the homeless because today is the deadline. But if you forgot, it's okay. You have time. You can go home and get it and come back by 1 o'clock. So um, we need brand new coats um, and unwrapped toys, um, but we also can use gently used coats and um, socks and hats and even sleeping bags for the homeless. So we're collecting for both, and we have barrels out there. Let's fill them today. Second announcement is for Young at Heart. You get to gather, we get to gather. Again, at last, it's been a long time. In fact, some of you may be new with us and be thinking, well, who qualifies for Young at Heart? Well, adults, married, single, widowed, Really, the only prerequisite is that you like to have fun and fellowship together, and you feel young at heart. And it really helps this time around if you like Christmas goodies and coffee. Sign me up. Not the coffee, but I like the goodies. And we'll be meeting in the fellowship hall um, on this Friday at 2.30, and there will be a Christmas program as well. So we hope to see you there. And then we need to fill you in about Christmas Eve. Can you believe it's just around the corner? So we have two options, and you can do both if you'd like. First, you can join us in person here in the auditorium at four o'clock for a family-friendly service. And we will have singing and scripture reading and a children's story. So you might wanna come at four o'clock and bring the family. Then, when you're at home, you've had your dinner, you can tune in at seven o'clock for our lessons and carol service, which will be online only done a little differently this year, more intergenerationally, but still live streamed on PBC's YouTube channel. So both kids and adults will lead us through the nine scripture readings and carols using versions from the Bible, like even the children's storybook Bible, to the King James Version. But don't fear, that's Charlie Brown's favorite version. So some of our families will be leading from their homes as well. So it will be a special service. So two opportunities on Christmas Eve. And then Christmas Day will be Saturday. And then Sunday will be the day after Christmas, December 26th. And it's a Sunday, so we'll have church. But listen up, because it's at 10 a.m. Don't come at 8.30. Don't come at 10.30. It'll be embarrassing either way. <laughs> come at 10 o'clock. And we will have a service that morning, just one service. And we'd like to show pictures of the family. So we need your help for this. We need everyone, singles, couples, families, everyone, to send us a picture of yourselves, maybe with your Christmas tree or a Christmas decoration. And if you don't decorate, just go outside in the wintry cold and take a selfie, take a picture, and send it to Christine at pbcc.org by December 20th so she has time to put it together into a slideshow and we'll show it during the service on the 26th. It will be such a blessing if everyone participates, all right? So there's your marching orders. All right, well, ways to give. Now is the portion of our service where we like to remind you that you can give by texting the word give to this PBC number on the screen, or you're welcome to put your envelope in the offering box in the back. And this is how we give back to the Lord in gratitude for all that he has given to us. Well, our scripture reading this morning is adapted from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 33. And this is really the background story of Jesus' birth 
And Brian described it so well this week in the e-newsletter that God had intervened several times in Israel's history to grant his people a new beginning. He's always doing new things. And in his gospel, Luke gives us a clue that this new beginning will be the last one and will set the stage for the grand climax to Israel's history and with it, the salvation of the whole world. So listen to this passage. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him, but the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. And then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why was he taking so long? When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home, and soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think, what could the angel mean? Don't be afraid the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. That is the word of the Lord. O Lord, nourish us by your Holy Spirit and life-giving word. Give us generous hearts to give ourselves to those who are in need. 
Help us to worship you in spirit and truth, with reverence and joy. And grant us Jesus' vision and the apostles' obedience to seek and save those who are lost for your glory. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, this is the third Sunday of Advent. Well, have you ever made a mess of your life and longed to have a reset button where you could do a clean install? You know, critical times in Israel's history when their world grew oppressive, morally dark as a result of idolatry, God intervened to subvert the existing order and he granted his people a new beginning, a fresh start. And these junctures in Israel's salvation history became milestones in their sacred story and were relived and celebrated in the yearly feasts. Yet despite God faithfully raising up deliverers and granting Israel a fresh start repeatedly, it never lasted. There was always an ominous crack in the foundation in the new, of the new order, a fatal flaw in the human instruments. Patriarchs grew faithless, priests turned corrupt, judges traded the rights of the poor for bribes, the kings became as wicked as their Canaanite successors. Despite Israel's failings, God maintained his witness through the prophets who faithfully functioned as the conscience of the nation. Unfortunately, Israel quit listening to her conscience and after centuries of getting a busy signal from his people, God hung up the phone and left the building. For 400 years, God's people were shut up in a tomb of silence. After a millennium of failure, 70 years of exile and oppressive certitude under foreign domination, with no new prophet or king in sight, Israel had become a despairing, dark nation. But the merciful and faithful God did not forget his promises. So just as in 1 Samuel, opens with the story of God inaugurating a new beginning through a barren woman after 400 years of spiritual compromise. So Luke's gospel opens with not one, but two, or, th or two, but three angelic visitations to introduce the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus following 400 years of silence. Luke is not introducing a new story, but continuing and advancing the story of God's work of saving the world to his climactic conclusion in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke's beginning is the longest of the four Gospels, 120 verses. The text is a tapestry of three angelic visitations, three journeys of obedience, three songs of prophecy and praise, all which surround two supernatural births. And framing the introduction is a description of the godly character of two elderly people. Together they represent the best of Israel's religious life and are given the highest accolades of character and devotion that have been constant for a lifetime. Well, Luke's magnificent opening gives us a clue that this new beginning will set the stage for the grand climax to Israel's history and the salvation of the world. This will be Israel, or Israel's and history's last new beginning. This is good news that remains forever new and good. 
And once this foundation is laid, everything in God's kingdom will be built upon it, as Paul writes, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this morning I will focus on these three angelic visitations. Well, the first hint that revolution is in the air is the presence of the archangel Gabriel, who stands before his God in his court and who we know from the book of Daniel, which Bernard had taught, is an angelic messenger sent from God to help the, uh, the prophet interpret visions regarding the last days. Now, after several centuries, God sends him again from heaven to announce two miraculous births. The first visitation is to the priest Zechariah in the temple of Jerusalem, announcing the birth of John. The second is to a young virgin named Mary in Nazareth of Galilee, announcing the birth of Jesus. If not two were enough, there is a third visitation, and an angel of the Lord is sent to shepherds who are watching their flocks in the fields outside Bethlehem. Well, having your world rocked by an angel is shocking enough, but each successive visitation takes the word impossible to new heights. In the first instance, we meet this priestly family, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both righteous before God, but had no child because Elizabeth was barren, well advanced in years. For this godly and faithful couple, life had not turned out the way they had hoped, and their deepest and most intimate hopes were unfulfilled. Gabriel breaks into his world at the place we might expect it in the temple during his priestly service. He said, do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. It moves me greatly that the announcement says, your prayer has been heard, and his wife, Elizabeth, will bear him a son. These are very tender words from a loving God. Though God is about fulfilling promises for the nation and the world, one scholar writes, the needs, hopes, and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in the larger story precisely because of who Israel's God is, the God of lavish, self-giving love. Though incredible, the promise is not without precedent in Israel's history, but that is not all. Gabriel announces that this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, which is new and unprecedented. This may explain why Jesus said of John, among those born of women, there was no one greater than John. John will function as a new Elijah to turn the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. And as Israel's last prophet, he will anoint Israel's final king. Well, Zechariah is slow to believe the promise of God, and rather than rejoicing in thankfulness and song, he is struck dumb, perhaps symbolic of the nation's spiritual insensitivity. Despite Zechariah's hardness of heart, Elizabeth still received the ability to conceive by the grace of God, and her status was restored among God's people. And then in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent Gabriel back to earth 
for a second birth announcement to Mary, far away from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, to Nazareth and Galilee, an insignificant, despised, and unclean Nazareth. The angel greets Mary with rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. So joy is to fill her heart because she's the recipient of God's undeserved grace. Now that phrase, I will be with you, conveys more significance than the generic promise of God's traveling presence. It's most often addressed to Israel's leaders when they are called to a task of insurmountable odds, like the Exodus. This was God's pregame speech to Moses before he sent him off to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. So now God gives the same speech to Mary, a young girl no more than 12 or 14 years old. If she'll respond in faith, the omnipotent God will be with her to protect, encourage, and strengthen her until the task for which she has been called is completed. Now that is the cause for joy, but that's only the half of it. <clears throat> to the bewildered Mary, <clears throat> Gabriel explains, she'll be the mother of God's long-expected king, God's very own son, who'll be given the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. The kingdom will never end. Gabriel's words echo the language of other birth announcements, especially the one given for Sarah, coupled with Daniel's description of the exaltation of one like the Son of Man. And when you put those two together, one cannot be helped but be overwhelmed that this is the climactic moment in history, the restoration of Israel and the salvation of the whole world. Now what these enunciations teach us is that contrary to what we often teach our own children, Fulfillment is not found by being perfect, okay? Fulfillment is not found by being perfect and hoping that somewhere, someday, somebody will applaud you. Fulfillment comes from being called into a world much larger than our own, a world where God is ever at work in people's lives to shape history and to bring heaven to earth. And God has called every one of us who are followers of Jesus into that story. With the complexity of expectations whirling in her head, Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? Unlike Zechariah, who cast doubt on God's ability, Mary's question seeks an explanation to understand the supernatural way this process will unfold. Well, Gabriel's answer reveals that though Mary indeed will play a role as an obedient recipient of grace, this miracle will be all of God's doing. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. As Tom Wright explains, the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, enabling to her to do and be more than she could be by herself. But at the same time, the power of the Most High will overshadow her. And this is something different 
God himself, the creator, will surround her completely with his sovereign power. Mary is an example of what happens when God is at work by grace through human beings. God's power from the outside and the indwelling spirit within together result in things being done which would have been unthinkable under any other way. Well, Gabriel concludes by reminding Mary of God's omnipotent power that no word from God will ever fail. And with that final word, Mary's faith leaps over the wall. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Now the personal and social cost of shame and sorrow in making such a commitment is difficult to comprehend. A sword is going to pierce her soul with this son. But Mary will acquiesce and her exceptional faith is, will be a model for all of Israel. The result is that Mary, who in that world was at the bottom of the social scale in terms of age, family heritage, and gender, turns out to be the favored one exalted by God. So in this revolutionary kingdom, one's status is defined by one's obedience to God and the privilege of being used for his saving purposes. Well, the miracle that occurs in Mary's womb is what happens to all of us when we put our trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit's poured out into our hearts and we become God's new creation with our future eternally secured until Christ is fully formed in us. As Paul writes, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. The point of all this is that there will never, ever have to be another restart in human history. This is good news that forever remains good and new. Now we come to Jesus' birth. The historical backdrop to his birth is a decree issued by Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of the, of the entire empire to increase Rome's tax base and thus the wealth of Caesar's treasury. Caesar Augustus was a brutal and difficult man, but he was a master politician and administrator, and he created a system of government that maintained unity and peace in the Mediterranean world for centuries. And these exploits conferred on him the divine title across the Roman world. Divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. The emperor's decree is a shameful reminder to the Jews that Rome exercises her power at will, doing whatever she wants, whenever she wants, and that they, as a conquered people, have no real power or influence. Thus, Joseph and Mary are forced to make this arduous 70-mile trek to Joseph's hometown, Bethlehem, to be registered when it is anything but convenient. Now, the good news we serve does not deny the dark realities of tyrannical forces that dominate the world. I don't know about you, but often if I'm immersed in the news, I get so depressed by injustice that seems to go on unchallenged in every sphere of life, right? Economic, political, world things. 
But the good news doesn't deny these realities. <clears throat> Instead, it subverts them in surprising ways that uses them to advance its purposes. So through the lens of faith, we are privileged to see that because Mary and Joseph comply with Caesar's decree, God is able to transport them from Nazareth to Bethlehem just in time to fulfill the prophecy spoken by Micah seven years earlier. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you shall come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It is here in Bethlehem, the house of bread, David's birthplace, not Rome, that Luke records the fulfillment of days, a phrase intended to convey much more than the completion of Mary's pregnancy. As Paul writes, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. <clears throat> now, despite centuries of longing anticipation, Luke describes the birth of the son with surprising brevity and simplicity, with no fanfare. He says, while they were there, the time came, literally the fulfillment of days, for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. <laughs> so this scene is kind of a delicate blend of poverty enveloped in care. When the son is born, he is lovingly wrapped in long bands of cloth, then gently laid in a feeding trough, which serves as his cradle. Now, in order to explain why this royal son is placed in the manger, Luke tells us that it was because there was no guest room available for them. The Greek term kataluma is not the commercial lodging place that has been depicted in our Christmas plays for two millennia. Rather, it's better translated guest room like the one Jesus used to celebrate his final Passover feast. Because Mary had relatives in Judea and Joseph was of the line of David, it's unlikely they needed housing outside their family and relatives. Kenneth Bailey gives an accurate, more accurate picture of the nativity scene as being a typical Middle Eastern home which consisted of a single room where the family lived and took their meals. So the floor of the room was a raised terrace and at the end of the terrace were steps descending to the ground level, and then a doorway where the animals were brought in at night. In this way, the animals were protected from the cold and provided warmth for the home at night. At the edge of the terrace level were feeding troughs carved in the ground or out of stone where the animals could feed. So the reason Jesus was placed in the feeding trough was because there was no room in the guest room. So perhaps we'll have to rewrite the poor innkeeper out of the Christmas pageant as well as the stable. <laughs> Sorry about all that money you spent on your Christmas crash. But lest that dash your Christian, Christ, Christmas imagination, it still communicates the same theology. Jesus is depicted as being received by the poor and marginalized of his day, while the rich and powerful are blind to his beauty. The manger may also suggest that his body, which will one day be laid in a tomb, will be, become the true bread that will feed Israel and the nations. Luke loses the identical language at his death. 
you go to the next slide there. Jesus' body, wrapped in a linen cloth, laid it in a tomb. So in both cases, his body is treated with tender care by those who loved him. And in both cases, someone gives up what belongs to them for the son's resting place. The animals lend him their feeding trough at his birth, and Joseph gives Jesus the tomb at his death. Jesus left the world as he came into it, owning nothing. In the first instance, it is his mother Mary who does the wrapping. In the second, it is Joseph, not her husband, but Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish council and high court. At Jesus' death, the bands of swaddling cloth are replaced by the finest linen, and the manger is replaced by a rich man's tomb in which no one ever sat. His life goes from a virgin womb to a virgin tomb. As Isaiah says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So such actions foreshadow that this king, though initially rejected, will be eventually acknowledged by every realm of society, from the poor to the rich, from the marginalized and significant to powerful rulers. So this good news will outlast death, and that's what makes it forever new and good. Now we come probably to the most amazing visitation of all, that to the shepherds. And there are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And as Linus says, they were sore afraid. The angelic visitation to the shepherds is significant for several reasons. In the Old Testament, the image of a shepherd was a positive one to describe the compassionate and sacrificial leadership of Israel's kings, especially David, and also that of the prophets and even God himself. But by the New Testament times, the image had become tarnished by the rabbis who in their efforts to intensify the purity laws in Israel listed shepherds among occupations that were considered unclean because tending and feeding their animals would lead shepherds into the unclean Gentile world and therefore suffer contamination. Secondly, the rabbis had redefined repentance as paying back in full any damage that you had done to others which made it impossible for shepherds to repent as they had no way of knowing all the damage their flock might have done inadvertently to the fields of others. And with no ability to repent, they would be the end of the line in the messianic age to come. Shepherds also represented the poor with no power or privilege. Though shepherds could own land, the tax burdens of that day were so great that most could not produce enough income to support their families from the holdings and were therefore forced to hire themselves out for extra wages just to make ends meet. Well, given such poor economic and social status, no shepherd ever had expected a divine visitation, especially of this magnitude. Yet the fact that as shepherds and not the rulers, this divine announcement is given, serves only to confirm Mary's song, 
that the kingdom of God is being inaugurated by means of a grand reversal. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Well, on this night, without warning, the glory of God broke into the shepherd's world and shone around them as if for this moment they were the center of the universe, as when Moses stood before God on Mount Sinai. The language Luke uses of that angelic appearance, the juxtaposition of the darkness of the night, the brilliance of the luminous glory of the Lord that shone is language of a divine epiphany and comes right out of Zechariah's song. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. One thing I've learned over the years is the joy when the story of scripture, which was ancient, which then becomes the story of Jesus, and then you're in the story. The words are yours. Nothing stirs the heart like that, that God thinks that you have such significance that you're pulled into this story. And that's what's happening to the shepherds. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Well, the unsuspecting shepherds are gripped with terror, wondering if they're gonna survive this intense light. But the angel assures them that he's come with good news that will transform their fear into unquenchable joy for the savior of the world has been born. Now they're not told the name of the child, but rather the royal lineage and divine titles, city of David, savior, Messiah, Lord. And while these titles are laden with theological significance for Jewish readers, they also dangerously are subversive to Roman readers who attributed these qualities to Augustus. Luke says, there's now another ruler born whose dominion is both universal and everlasting. He's the true savior, Messiah, and Lord, which puts the rulers of this world on notice. Angel goes on, this will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with those his favor rests. The wealth of these acclamations stands in contrast to the poverty of the sign. The Messiah is not wrapped in fine linen, but in swaddling clothes, and his resting place is not the king's palace in Jerusalem, but in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. Before the shepherds come to grips with what they have just heard, the veil between heaven and earth is suddenly lifted to reveal a host of angels as far as the eye can see. They break out in song that resonates like thunder. Why don't you say these words with me? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among whom he is pleased. Let's try it again, a little louder. I mean, this is, you ready? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
Amen. So though that's short in length, that is the ultimate praise chorus and the appropriate response to what God has done. There is glory filling heaven and peace on earth with whom he's pleased. At Jesus' birth, God's mercy has fallen on the whole world. And then Luke writes, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, overwhelmed with joy and their imaginations ignited by the spirit of revelation, the shepherds, the lowest of the low, are suddenly transformed into angelic messengers armed with a divine mission. Like the angels, they leave their normal abode for a higher purpose. Like the angels, they are faithful to deliver the divine announcement about the child. And having seen the child in a manger, they become passionate witnesses, telling Mary and Joseph all the significance of what they have seen and heard. God does not leave interpretation to chance. And finally, like the angels, the shepherds are not content merely to tell the story, for the story is too glorious to be confined to narrative. It must be sung by PBC's choir and everyone else. <laughs> glorious praise. I think we become most human and divine when we sing. First comes the poetry, and then you sing it. <laughs> well, the fact that angels who dominate Luke's beginning do not make another appearance in the gospel, except one to Jesus, that suggests that the transformation of the shepherds experienced is something God intends for all of us. The word angel just means messenger. For taking on the role of angels is what makes us most human and divine. This is good news that forever stays new and good. Amen. And now by God's grace, may you all be filled with the wonder of Mary, the obedience of Joseph, the radiant glorious joy of the angels, the eagerness of the shepherds, and the peace of the Christ child. To the Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless you now and forever. Amen.